got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Hope you had a good weekend. That was a very enthusiastic hey. I had a good weekend. I feel refreshed. So I, I hope you did. Did you have a good weekend? Yeah, I did. I had a pretty good weekend. I mean, I mostly just relaxed, but... I'll take it. Sometimes that's the best weekends. You just recharge your batteries and everything. Although, Heck yeah. <laughs> you know, now that I, I, I talk about it, like I, I spent like half my weekend just doing like yard work and it was really? a billion degrees outside. So maybe it wasn't that great of a weekend, but you know, I'm I'm not going to spoil that thought uh, in my head. Um, okay. So today we are doing our final KU football position preview. So that's exciting on its own. We'll be done from here. And then uh, I don't know what we'll do. No, uh, for the next couple of weeks, obviously we'll be... Uh, previewing the start of the season maybe we'll start previewing some of KU football's opponents and uh, the different teams they're going to be playing along the way here the last position we have to do we did the special teams kickers punters like I guess the specialists you could call them the long snappers and everything Uh, the one side of special teams we didn't do was the return men Um, so this is a little more difficult to try to peg like who you bring in back who's new to the team because it's not a, a position where, hey, KU landed the number 22 kick returner in the country on 24-7 <laughs> sports. It's like, no, KU has this player who's athletic and he's fast and he's good in the open field, and that's who's going to be returning. So it really is a, a pretty open base of, of who you have onto a team at this position. But just as far as guys who they lost to kind of impacted this spot, uh, from the kick return spot, Kyler Pearson transferred away. He had five kick returns last year, had five kick returns the year before. Didn't have a ton of success on those kick returns. He was um, at about a 15-yard per return average, which, you know, if you field it at the 5, you take it to the 20, you field it at the 10, you go to the 25. So nothing crazy there. Uh, But he was a a former recruit with Emma Jones coming in from Oklahoma. Jamal Horn transferred away, and... And he was a you know blazing speed, super fast guy. He had a really cool story as well, just from how he earned his scholarship and, and position at KU. Uh, he returned 20 kicks in 2019, a little over 22 yards per kick return. He returned 15 in 2020 at about 22 and a half yards per kick return. And then last year, he got two kick returns at a 22 and a half yard return average, which that's pretty good there. Like I said, if, if you're fielding the ball, you know, in your end zone, it's you're probably just going to take the touchback. But if you field at the five, you bring it up to the 27, 28, you know, it's better than you were to get a touchback, which that's kind of the immediate math there is can you at least get like 20 yards per return? So he's gone. And then the big one that you lose is Kwame Lasseter. He wasn't really a, a guy returning kicks. He did have 23 total returns between 2018 and 2020 where he did return some kicks, return some punts. But it was mainly in the punt return game last year. He returned eight punts last season, which I know that sounds like a low number, but they don't count fair catches as a punt return. So 
It really would be higher than that. Most punts end up being fair catches, but he averaged 13 and a half yards per punt return, which that is a very good number to have for a guy, but it wasn't just that. It was having those sure hands as being a guy who you didn't really have to worry about why did he decide to field that punt instead of taking a fair catch or, oh no, he tried to fair catch it, but he dropped the ball or hey, why didn't he grab that ball and instead let it bounce for 10 right. yards behind them? He was very good at making good decisions and being sound with the football. So that's going to be the biggest spot I think you have to kind of make up for in the return game. Because like I said, with kick return, a lot of times like there's less of a worry about you know catching the ball or do I catch the ball, do I kneel here? It's just a little bit different there, and it is more so just get your best athlete you can out in kick return, but also you don't want to like overdo it. For instance, Kenny Logan has been the kick returner mainly for the past two years. Last year, he had 15 kick returns. He averaged 28 yards per return. He had two big ones that that stick out in my mind. There might be more. I think it was uh, the South Dakota game. He returned one uh, you know, well onto their mm-hmm. side of the field. And then I want to say the West Virginia game in the season finale, he again did the same thing, returned it well onto the other side of the field. I think that was also like pretty late in the game where they like yeah. needed a touchdown or something like that. I think you're right. I think it was when it was 34-21. Right. It was late in the fourth quarter. It was like, ah, I don't know if KU is going to have it in the cards this game, but he brought it back and it was like, hey, maybe they have a chance here, right? And they ended up scoring, but they lost by six because they couldn't get off the field at the other end. But, you know, good kick return. And then 2020, he had uh, 13 kick returns, 26 and a half yard average. He had the one kick return touchdown. Um, so, 100 yard touchdown, I think. Is who what was, was that against? I forget. I it was remember. Well, here's the thing. That whole season uh, yeah, because it was 0-9. That's true. <laughs> they weren't close in any of the games, so it's not like... It's not like uh, that kick return would stick out in terms of I don't know maybe that maybe we'll save that for trivia. I so if want, you're listening now, there's a hint. I want to say Iowa State, <laughs> but I could be wrong. There. Actually, now that you bring it up, I think it was Iowa State. So Lane wins trivia. <laughs> uh, I am zero one. Lane is one zero. Um, but who knows? That might come up on RCST trivia later. So like I said, if you're listening now, there's your bonus point. Um, okay, so Kenny Logan returns. You expect him to be a kick returner, but there's a part of me that wonders with the role that he plays on defense and being, you know, one of, uh, I don't know, maybe the leader of the team and being one of, if not your best player overall on the team, do you want him returning every kick? Like, there are going to be times when he might be tired out there. Like, sure, if you want to have him return the opening kick of the game or the opening kick of the second half and and whatever, and, and I guess you could just say, well, it's just one play. And if you're getting the kick return, then you're about to go on offense, so he has time to rest. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm I'm blowing this up into nothing. Do you, do you view that as any problem at all? Like do do you want to give him less hits and and less snaps so that he can be uh more rested for the defensive side of the ball so it's only a handful of kick returns? I see where you're coming from. It's just the thing is he's he's been so dang talented in the kick return that he's probably already accepted the role that he's going to be a kick returner and yeah, I do see that you want him to get less hits. You want to keep him healthy for the defensive side of the ball where he's absolutely phenomenal. But I think given how great he has been in the kick return, he I, I think he's going to stay there. Uh, so I, But I do see where you're coming from. I, I and, I, it, and I I would not be surprised if they decided to only have him a handful of times or just decide to completely wipe him off of the kick return circuit. Yeah. I, uh, I um, don't remember which coach said this, but one of the – I thought it was Leipold. It might have been somebody else um, that – um, 
he has just been like pestering them and always has about like wanting to return the kicks and everything like that. So he, it, it clearly is something that he wants to do. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. I'm probably overblowing that. It, it, you know, it's 15 kick returns last year, right? That's one per game. So I don't even think he I mean, was returning all of them to begin with. In fairness, well, I mean, most teams go with a two kick return system anyway. Mm-hmm. I was also going to say if you have a high amount of kick returns in your stat line, that usually says something about your team. Yeah. It's usually not that great. But I will say a twenty-eight average last year, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I, I think you gotta I think you gotta stick with them. Yeah, I, I agree. Um so I think that um is something where you're right, it's more so other guys will get kick returns just because it's natural to have a two kick return system, but it won't just be, hey, we need this guy on defense all the time, like let's take him off kick return. Luke Grimm returned one kick last year, twenty seven yards. Trevor Wilson returned one for 20. He's a guy that makes sense a lot to me as being that other kick returner does Trevor Wilson because of the fact that he has so much speed. Luke Grimm makes some sense to me as a punt returner because he is kind of that like sure-handed guy. And then you have Daniel Highshaw. Like that would be a great opportunity for Highshaw to get more touches, get back on the field. He had four kick returns in 2020, obviously missed last season. He only averaged 10 yards per kick return though. And as much as that would be an opportunity for him to get extra touches when you do have a lot of good running backs that you're going to try to get as many touches to as possible. He's not really the prototypical guy you think of from a a kick returner because he is more of like a big bruising back. But I think back to like the Chiefs, like Niall Davis. Niall Davis was like a big bruising back, but he had really fast, like straight line speed. I don't know if Haisha has that, but who knows? Maybe he does. And and he at least returned some kicks, uh, like I said, in 2020. And then literally like, Like I said, this is open to anyone. Anyone who is fast. So we've heard a lot about Quentin Skinner being really fast, right? Anyone who is a skill player, like a a defensive back, a wide receiver, a running back who is fast or good in the open field, you are automatically a candidate in theory here. Um, Would it be kind of fun if Jason Bean was the kick returner? (laughs) If he's the fastest guy on your team? That would be awesome, actually. (laughs) I mean, he's he's good running in open fields. Um, He's really fast. But, yeah, obviously that's... I mean, the thing is that... I'd be very shocked if that happened. I would, too. The thing is that I personally don't think that speed should be the only criteria for Mm -hmm. a kick returner. I mean, I know I'm, you know, talking about one of the best that we've seen in recent history, but of course with the Chiefs, Tyreek Hill. The dude has amazing agility, um, great field awareness, and he was able to find an open lane here, there, and everywhere. I know also some of that has to do with the blocking and stuff like that, and it also helped that he had... What like a four three like a yeah, four three four two, four, two yeah. forty or something like that, um, but speed is not you know the only thing that's going to set you apart from the rest and make you a great kick returner. You know you have to have the agility and the awareness and that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I think of like was it Josh Cribbs who I I want to say broke the record for like career kickoff return touchdowns till Devin Hester took it, and Josh Cribbs was like not someone who ran like four three forty. He was like four 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 five, like kind of bigger guy, but he just had good vision, knew where to go, was fearless, and that that's as much as a part of it as anything. But yeah, speed helps too. Um, so like I said, newcomers, any new skill players. If I'm projecting this, what it would look like right now, like you're looking at the depth chart and everything. Um, I would assume Kenny Logan has some sort of role in kick return. I wouldn't be surprised if you have the occasional like Devin Neal or Kai Thomas kick return. Mm. Like we saw that very rare. It, like Puka Williams would occasionally have a kick return, but it wasn't every time, right? Like maybe it's just a big moment in the game or to lead off the game or something like that. Like might have a handful from some of those guys. I think we're going to see a lot of Savion Morrison 
in the return game in general. He's one of your newcomers, transfers in from Nebraska. He's like a, a very athletic, fast, quick twitch type of running back. He compares his game to DeAnthony Thomas. It, it might be a little tougher to get him touches at the running back spot. Like you can get him a handful, but if you're giving a bunch to Devin Neal or Kai Thomas or Daniel Hyshaw, whoever, any of these guys, it becomes a little more difficult. There is an area that he can kind of carve out a role in the game and that I think he could be really good at. Former four-star recruit was at Nebraska, so clearly that kind of shows you the type of athlete that the kid was. And uh, he's someone that I think would make sense in, in both return spots, at punt return or kick return or maybe doing a little bit of one or the other. Then you have Trevor Wilson, like I said, has a lot of speed, has shown an affinity for having long plays, whether on screens or deep passes. Like, he's just good in the open field. The question with him is that he has had some questions or or issues at times over the course of, like, practices with KU and everything of maybe not having, like, the most secure hands on the team, that if you're putting him on punt return, like I said, that very much matters. So I could see him more on kick return than I could see him on punt return. But I wouldn't be shocked if you're in a situation where, like, that's the other part of this. Sometimes it's not just as simple as who's my punt returner, they're my punt returner in every situation. You know, if you have one, like Kwame Lasseter, then, yeah, you might use him every single time. But there might be certain situations where you go, hey, they're punting at the 45-yard line, so clearly they're going to try to pin us deep. It's going to be of utmost importance for our guy to just be our secure hands guy so that he can catch it at the 12 and avoid it rolling inside the 5-yard line. So in that situation, we want the hands guy. We'll throw Luke Grimm out there, whatever. But in this situation, they just had a three and out at their own 25-yard line. They're now punting. This is going to be a situation where we're going to have an opportunity to return the punt and shouldn't have to worry as much about immediate pressure on the guy catching the punt. Maybe in that situation, you have a Trevor Wilson or whoever that is more so skills-based than than hands-based, if that kind of makes sense. But I would imagine Trevor Wilson will get some looks in the return game. Um, And then, like I said, you could have any other, like Quentin Skinner, the fact that we heard he was super fast. He's a receiver, so that, in theory, lines up with having good hands and everything like that. Like that would make sense. Lance Leipold actually uh, spoke about this the other day at one of his media availabilities and talking about kind of with punt returns specifically, how they have kind of an audition going on. He also added some other stuff on the special teams. Here is the uh, audio clip from Lance Leipold. Losing Kwame Lasser, especially in punt return, has opened up some opportunities. We're going to have to find somebody who's going to make great decisions and, uh, you know, of course, secure the football. We, you know, I, you know, may change special teams coordinator as well, kind of change again in some format there where we're not going to have one coach coaching everything. We're, we're having it broken down with lead coaches in a format that uh, a lot of us are a little more comfortable with. And I, th- I think that's going to help us in the, in the coaching aspect and attention to detail with some of that. And uh, we've got to be better there. We've got to find ways to, uh, you know, get some, get some hidden yardage. Um, what I mean by that, by you know, reducing returns on the opponent, creating a first down on our own end, okay, and uh, you know, I I, I, love, I really like our specialists. I should say I love our specialists. You know, that's just I just think they compete, they're consistent, they don't get flustered. Um, but at the same time, there's certain times of the year where we we kind of hit a lull last year, and we gotta again be able to to respond to adversity as we go through it. You know, I, the more I think about this, like I wonder if Tory Lachlan 
could be an answer at punt return. You're talking about a guy that, by all accounts, seems very trustworthy from the staff, like the, so much so that they've used him at so many different positions. Uh, obviously, was you know before he moved over to running back last year, he was a receiver. Um, prior to that, was a quarterback. But that should tell you that again, like if he's a more trustworthy guy with good hands, maybe that's enough. And and clearly, he was. I remember watching some of his tape in, in high school when he was a quarterback. And it was insane, like how many guys he was making miss in the open mm-hmm. field, or couldn't sack him, or anything like that. Um, when he was as a quarterback, so clearly he's got some some juice in the open field. That would be one I would definitely want to keep an eye on. And then, like I said, you have like uh, Stephen McBride. I think is a good athlete receiver. Douglas Emelian. I don't know a ton about everything with his game, but if you're again a skill player and and you're a good receiver, put you in in the running. I said Quentin Skinner, Tanaka Scott, maybe some of the receivers, some of the corner breaks out. I think we saw a little bit of uh, Jacoby Bryant in in um in some of his athleticism when he you know had some uh, like the pick six against Texas. I, I I don't know. It's a little easier when you have. Like, I mean, straight in fairness, that was more open right. field. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I think we just know he's a good athlete. Like it wouldn't shock me if if one of those DBs, something like that, like Jacoby Bryant or someone, got some reps in in some sort of return game, and then. Like I said, it just feels like it's a wide-open competition. Like, I, I have no idea if any of the newcomers, whether it's freshmen, whether it is transfers coming in, like, kind of have that in their back pocket. Um, but I I think th- among the guys we named, like, it'll probably mostly come from those guys. I think so, too. It's only just going to come down to who can you trust the most because there's a lot of guys that have the potential to be a punt returner, and heck, we're probably going to see more than one throughout the course of the season. I mean, there's just so many talented guys, speedy guys, guys with good hands, and, you know, if they can infuse all that together, and you know, like I said, it's going to come down to who they can trust the most. So key questions for me. I was looking at this, and Kansas was actually good last season in terms of kick return and kickoff coverage. They were also good in punt return. It's just, can they pick up the slack? And I know this is going back to that other special teams preview, but kind of the place-kicking side of things and on the punt unit. Kansas was 38th in average yards per kick return last season. So on their end of the ball, when they were returning the kick, they were top 40 in the country. That'll get it done. Mm -hmm. In kickoff coverage, so when Kansas was kicking off, Kansas had just 35 touchbacks. That was not a good number. But again, that goes back to the kicker specifically, not the coverage. But when they weren't touchbacks, opponents averaged just 12.7 yards per kickoff return against them last season. That was second in the country. It was behind only Michigan, and it was one spot in front of Georgia. Wow. Pretty damn good. Yeah. (laughs) In punt return, Kansas was 11th in the country in average yards per return. So, again, this goes back to how do you replace Kwame Lasseter, but that's not just Kwame. Like, guys were blocking for him and setting up the scheme and everything. You did pretty good there. I, I think you could even argue, like, Savion Morrison or someone like that is actually more explosive than Lasseter and might be better in the open field, avoiding tacklers and everything. It's just that Lasseter gives you more, I don't know, you don't have to worry about, like, the decision-making or maybe the catching and everything like that. And maybe whoever takes over there, you won't have to worry about it either. It's just that you knew what you kind of had there with Kwame Lasseter. So that, and uh, you also didn't have to worry about, well, he was also wide receiver number one. Yeah. So you didn't have to worry about the extra hits. Yeah. Um, that just kind of brings it back to the punt defense, though. Like that was KU's biggest bugaboo outside of the, the lack of like touchbacks and place kicking. They were 124th in the country, they were last in the Big 12 
in return yards on punts. Um, so I know that sounds like a good thing. It's basically the opposite. They were 124th in the country in terms of most punt return yards given up, right? So it's kind of a two-way street here because I don't necessarily view this as all on just like the punt defense. I think a lot of this just has to do with the struggles that Reese Vernon had at punter last season. We talked about in that preview that, you know, he was uh, last in the Big 12 among average yards per punt, net yards per punt, stuff like that. And it's a combination of, you know, not kicking it far enough, not kicking it high enough. A low hang time is going to lead to quicker returns. But that's the big difference there. Like, overall, if you if you take out the the stats that are based on, hey, did the kicker make or miss the field goal? Because if you look at, like, ESPN SP+, or if you look at ESPN special teams efficiency, KU ranks poorly in both of those. But I think a lot of that just comes down to what this showed me is this that KU missed too many field goals or KU's mm-hmm. punter didn't have a good enough season overall. But in terms of, like, the things that get schemed up or guys trying or – you know, having guys who can make an impact in kick coverage or kick return. KU was actually pretty good last season. I think that has to give you a lot of optimism about what this could be. On the other end, it gives you a little less optimism because if it is being kind of hamstrung back by uh, struggles at the kicker and punter position, I'm not sure how much better those positions got this season, so that's not great. But I, I think this shows you that for a team – And whenever you're at a school like Kansas who isn't going to win with just overwhelming talent, you have to take advantage of special teams. You just do. You look back at all the Bill Snyder years, you know, they they rock solid on special teams, right? KU has to do those things. And and for that to happen, it seems like they've kind of gotten in the right place in year one in some of those regards. They just need to find the right kicker and punter. And maybe those guys are the guys who are returning and they'll show improvement and everything. But that's really the big difference. It's not about being out-coached or out-tried or out-hustled or having the wrong guys on the special teams unit. They actually found something there, which I think that has to be kind of exciting because, to me, that is kind of the first step to becoming a good special teams unit. It's essentially for a program that is really trying to rebuild and has had issues with rebuilding over the past decade, it's one less thing to worry about. Mm -hmm. And I know there. I mean, there are a lot of aspects to worry about, obviously, but if you have a special teams unit that can – I wouldn't say do everything for you, but can at least answer the call and at least put a little bit less pressure on the offense and the defense. Beautiful. Perfect. That'll help out a ton. He is Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lesky will talk Royals with us in about 15 minutes. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Welcome back. Derek Johnson with Lane Gillespie here on KLWN. Joined now by David Lesky of Inside the Crown, a fun weekend that was for the Kansas City Royals and a fun day yesterday, just kind of demonstratively taking down the Red Sox to finish out that series. Uh, before we get into the the fun week that was kind of uh, for the Royals, David, uh, this is our first time talking to you since the trade deadline actually happened. So 
just kind of putting a, a bow on all that, what did you think about the return that the Royals got for the few players they traded away, including Whit Merrifield? Um, yeah, so I think the return they got for the players they traded was good. Not great, good. Um, I gave that, you know, for a letter grade, I gave it a B. I think that going back to Carlos Santana, um, I think that's part of the whole trade season. I think they did a nice job. On, on the actual returns, um, like I mentioned last week, the Benintendi deal got better when you saw the Peralta deal. So, you know, you feel pretty good about that. Um, I, I, I still think they probably could have done a little bit more than they did, but I admit it a lot. <laughs> so it, the, the farther I get away from it, the less angry, I don't know when you say angry, but the less um, frustrated and, and, you know, disappointed I, I have become with with what they ended up doing. But, I mean, like the Merrifield deal, for example, they got back a legitimate pitching prospect for him. And Merrifield not having a good year, <laughs> he's not likely to get better. With you know, at some point, the aging aging process makes you get worse as a baseball player. So, um, got back a legitimate pitching prospect, and I think Samad Taylor is, is an interesting player as well. So, uh, that was a really nice return. Um, you know, like I said, I, I I would have been really interested to see what they could have gotten for Scott Barlow or Brad Keller, Michael A. Taylor, these guys. But they didn't move them. Um, and, and, you know, from what I understand since then, now, there, there's always a lot of revisionist history after the deadline of, oh, yeah, we didn't want him anyway or we weren't going to trade him, you know, all this stuff. So it's, it's hard to know for certain, but it kind of sounds like the market for Barlow wasn't what, it probably should have been. Um, so, you know, with, with that in mind, I, I don't, I don't think it's maybe as disappointing as, as I initially thought. But I, I still would have liked to see a little bit more. Talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown here. If with all these young players that are up now, and, and that's a big part of what I think made last weekend and, and last week so much fun, seeing all the young kids kind of come around and, and lead to. You know, certain successes or have individual games that, that make you feel happy about uh, where the organization or, or where some of the team could be going. You know, we've always kind of joked around about the Royals in years past that they get out of it and then all of a sudden come August or September, you know, it's uh, they'll go 20 and 8 in September or something like that, right? And then it's like, oh, did, did they figure something out? Is that going to lead over into success the next year? And it doesn't. It doesn't. But with this year's team, and, and I'm afraid because if I do this, I don't want to fall into that same trap once again, but because there are so many young players now who, you know, should be, be getting better year in and year out, and this isn't just a, hey, we have a bunch of veterans who happen to have a good September, like, would that actually mean something if they were to have one of those months here over this final, uh, I guess, two months of the season? Yeah, I, I don't, I want to say it means more. Because you're right, it's not, oh, Carlos Santana, you know, they had a good September last year, but it's not a Carlos Santana type or even a Whit Merrifield type or whoever that might be, you know, coming down the stretch and, and carrying a team. It's a bunch of guys who are, or likely would be, a bunch of guys who are 27 and younger, mostly 25 and younger, and Salvador Perez, who is um, going to be here for a while. So, you know, he's, even though he's, he's a veteran, He's, he's important because he's got three more years left. They're not moving him. So um, I think it does mean something. And, 
it, it, it's always been how, how you go about it. I think about spring training. You know, you, you look at a game, you say, well, the Royals were 18-7 and seven in spring training. And then you look at what their records were when it was starters against starters. They're not the record. What the score was when the starters would leave. And every game, it was 5-3 to three after 5. And then, and then the young guys would come in and they'd win games. You go, wow, the Royals are really going to be good this year. And then you realize they won because of uh, some guy in AA you've never heard of before and will never hear of again. And so it, it really matters how they get to where they get. And th- there's some concern about that because, you know, last year they went 38 and 35 after the break and they did it with young starters leading the way. Daniel Lynch, Carlos Hernandez, Chris Lewis pitched really well in September. Um, and so they have won before with future players before. And, and it's, it's, um, it hasn't worked out the next year. Obviously we saw what happened in the first third of the season this year. So there's a little caution, but also, I, I don't know how you can tell somebody, what do they have, like 53 games, is that right? I think it is, um, 52, whatever it is. If they go, if it's, if it's 53, and they go 30 and 23, let's say, and they do it because Vinny Pasquantino hits 12 home runs, and MJ Melendez hits 280, and Bobby Wood Jr., you know, all this stuff, I don't know how you can tell somebody, hey, it doesn't mean anything. Just just continue to be pessimistic and, and think the Royals are going to stuck forever. You know, I, I, just, I just don't think I don't think you can reasonably say that. So I, I do think it matters. And I, and I think, you know, looking at what the young starters did last year down the stretch, they pitched well ERA-wise at times, but they weren't pitching that well. And, and I think that I made the mistake of saying, hey, they gave up this many runs and this many innings, that's good. This feels different, though, with the starters even. I mean, Brady Singer is putting up, what, a, like a 5-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Daniel Lynch in his last six or seven starts is 4-to-1. Chris Bubich is, is 4 or 5-to-1 over his last few starts. I mean, it's, it's, they're going about it in sustainable ways rather than unsustainable ways. So I think from that perspective, if they win some games, and also the schedule is brutal. Down the stretch. So if, if they win some games, I think there's every reason to be optimistic. Vinny Pascantino had three hits the other day, and I, uh, you know, uh, we keep you, you look at his baseball savant page, or you look at his, you know, I don't know, expected batting average, or, or the low K rates and and the good walk rates and everything, and keep waiting for him to to kind of bust out statistically. Um, do you think that's coming this season, or do you think we might not see that kind of regression to the mean in certain areas till maybe next year? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because every time you, you watch him, he's hitting the ball hard, and one of the things that he's struggled with a little bit over, not even the whole time he's been up, but over the last couple weeks, I guess, is, is ground balls. He's hitting the ball on the ground quite a bit, which has never been an issue for him in the minors. Um, I think that that's an adjustment he needs to make, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at the savant page and he doesn't have enough of bats for a lot of it, but I mean, maximum exit velocity is what 88th percentile. Something like that. He's averaging 92.1 miles per hour. He's hitting about half the ball is hard. Like you said, he's only striking out 16% of the time, walking 10% of the time. Everything is there. <laughs> Everything you want from a hitter is there. If he can make, and I think it's a slight adjustment, 
Um, if he can make that slight adjustment, get the ball in the air some more, I, I, I don't know how you stop him once he gets going. I, I think, I think it's going to happen. You know, there are other hitters who have a similar profile, and they end up hitting. It, it just sometimes it does take a little time. I, I don't know if it's going to be this season. I mean, I think I, I would tend to believe it will be just because, again, that profile. But if he doesn't start lifting the ball a little bit, it, it could be it, – it may take more of an adjustment than I think it would take to get the ball in the air a bit. And then that, that's kind of where the difference is. Once, once he starts lifting, I don't think we'll see many issues from him. You mentioned in the previous answer Daniel Lynch and Brady Singer both showing a lot of good flashes here. So with both having this nice string of play uh, – uh, I'm going to ask you a question that you'll never be able to change your answer to the rest of time. Who winds up with the better career, Daniel Lynch or Brady Singer? Oh, boy. Yeah, it, it, that's so tough because I I look at, just, just to put top-end comps on here, not not to say that these are the guys, but I, I, I can see Brady Singer having a James Shields-like career where he's always often really good, occasional great stretches, Never like a true number one, um, but that's a really valuable piece to a team. And I could see Daniel Lynch, if you want to go raise Blake Snell ish, where he could have. I, I think I think he could have the best season of any of them. So maybe I'm going to hedge my bet here. I think Brady Singer has the better career, and Lynch has the best season between the two of them. Okay, um, Bobby Witt Jr. is currently a top blank player in the MLB at this point. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, without having really dug into the numbers, I would say, hmm, let's see, 30 teams, 26 players per team, 780 players, 390 position players. I would say he's top 25% to the top 100, top 95. I think there's some Royals fans who would hear that and say that's it. That's not fair. That's not fair. There's 270 <laughs> starting players. Let me let me rethink that. Okay. I, I was thinking top quarter, but that doesn't that. That's that, that mathing the hell out count. of this. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. I think top 60. Okay. Um, so if I were to follow up that question with where do you think he would be next season? How high would you go? Uh, top 20, top 10. I mean, somewhere in there. I I, I think my guess, and, and this is somewhat optimistic and hopeful and somewhat because I know what kind of a worker he is, I would say that you will see a massive jump for him. And it's either going to be from year one to year two or year two to year three. Um, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised. I think if he struggled a little bit next year, the sophomore slump is very real, but I also kind of have a feeling he's going to come back next year. Like, Oh, totally better at everything he's bad at and improving on the things he's good at and, and just be an absolute superstar next season. I think that he he's the type of guy who gets that year of, of information, the year of the way he plays, and and goes into the offseason attacking everything. I mean, very Mahomes-ish, actually. Um, and I think that he'll come in next year with just, like, I mean, top. He'll, he'll end up top 10 or 20, but he might be top 5, honestly, if if everything goes perfectly. Well, as you look at this young core and this young group as a whole, like, and I think 
Bobby Witt, like one thing that we've seen improve over the course of the season is just swinging it at strikes and not swinging out of the strike zone and, and just small things like that. As you look at this kind of young core, what are what are some of those, I guess, small areas that uh, would make you more hopeful uh, about what they could become and that they already are fixing some of the, I guess, quote-unquote weaknesses for guys like Witt and Melendez and, and so forth down the line? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that we see with these young players is what we've talked about all season long, really, since, I guess, since Melendez came up. They give the best plate appearances on the team. <laughs> to, to a man, I, I, would, I would rather look. I, I love the way Salvi hits the ball 9,000 feet, and it's great to watch. But sometimes his plate appearances are really cringy because he's just, he's, he's swinging no matter what. And, and you know, that, that's, it, it's worked for him to build his career. But I, it is it is a thing of beauty to watch guys like Pasquantino and Prado and Melendez spit on pitches they can't do anything with, and just wait for their pitch. They strike out sometimes they do because and Pasquantino less than the other two. But you know they 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 get themselves into counts where sometimes the pitcher's pitch can get them because they're not going to swing until there's two strikes if they can't drive the ball. Um, so I just want to see more of that. I noted this, I think it was yesterday, the thing that Bobby Witt Jr. has improved on, he's not walking more yet, um, but what he's done is he's found a way to make contact on some of these pitches that he was missing earlier in the year. His, his, he had a plate appearance in the first inning yesterday, um, where I think he fouled two pitches off, but I'm pretty sure he would have swung through at least one of those two and been strike three. But because he fouled them both off, he had one more pitch that became ball four. And that, that's one of those things, Alcides Escobar always impressed me when he was younger. He, he kind of, he lost it a little bit as he got a little bit older, but he, he could stay alive in at bats, swinging at pitches he had no business swinging at, but because he was able to flick them foul. And if you're not going to take those pitches, you've got to be able to spoil them. And I think Bobby was learning that a little bit. So when you combine that with the other guys who have just this outstanding plate discipline, um, I guess more played approach. It that's all I want to see. I want to see more and more of that. And now you're adding in Michael Massey, who is somewhere closer to wit, I think, as far as the discipline goes, um, but with fewer strikeouts. So maybe he's kind of a, a hybrid of, of of the two groups. Um, but I I just think that they, you know, as as a as a group, just do a really nice job of that. And I just want to see more of it. Drew Waters, since coming over via the trade, has a uh, OPS over a thousand, a one sixty nine WRC plus. Now the strikeout issues are, are still there. It's actually even a slightly higher K rate than he was with Atlanta in AAA. But he is just on an absolute hot streak right now. Do you think we see him at some point in the majors here over the last two months, or do you think like a Michael A. Taylor trade not happening? Maybe uh, I don't know. Puts the kibosh on that. Yeah, what I've been told, and then this obviously could change, is that they are they're wanting to keep him down in in AAA to work with Drew Saylor, um, which is obviously working. And you mentioned his higher strikeout rate. It, what is it? It's twenty eight percent. Yeah, so it's it's, a, it's like a one yes. percent higher than it yes, was it's barely. But if you look at his swinging strike rate. That's actually like one percent lower than it was with uh, with the Braves, and so I, I think 
what is blending itself to a little bit is kind of the issue that Nick Prado runs into sometimes where they're, they're working with waters to be more selective on what to swing at. So his walk rate is way up. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty significant increase there, but because he will occasionally get two strikes, he's going to strike out sometimes. And so I think that's, that's where that, that issue is coming. Um, as far as him and the majors, I, I keep being told, like I said, they want, they want to keep him down there. I, at some point, you're going to expand the rosters to 28 in September. I don't know. I, I, I could see him up in the big leagues, um, but, you know, I may, maybe they want to keep him in Omaha because everybody's in the majors. <laughs> so, so they want to give, you know, somebody in Omaha a chance. But you can see John Rave get it, work his way up and, and get Drew Waters to the majors. I wouldn't be shocked if we see him for a couple of weeks. I also wouldn't be shocked if we don't see him until – spring training in next season, but um, definitely trading tape, not, not trading Taylor made it much less likely he'll be up, but I, I can see it at some point. All right. Who is the player of the week? You know, it's fun when there's options. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 was it Melendez last week? Singer. No, I believe, I believe you gave it to Melendez. I did. And, that, that, I think I did, and that, that's why I was hesitant. But it's hard to argue with a 615 slugging percentage, 10 RBIs, and a 138 way to run created plus. I mean, Kyler's had a really good week, too. He was at 239 on the way to run created plus. So that, that, that's a big one. Salvi had three homers and seven RBIs. But, I mean, it's got to be Melendez. The guy had six RBIs yesterday. How, 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 is, yeah. how is that not? He's, he's, lead, he's leading off and doing this. Yeah, he. Two leadoff home runs, it, it's got to be MJ. He is David Lesky. Check out his work. Subscribe to his Substack Inside the Crown. David, I appreciate the time as always, man. No problem. Thanks, sir. All right, that's David Lesky, Inside the Crown. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. One hour down, two to go. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear. Plus, they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code Talk. That's Talk all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Shock Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend long bender? I gotta get out of here. I think I'm gonna lose it. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're freaking me out, man. I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. How much does it calm down? Look around you. With Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. Case of the Mondays. Hope you're not having a case of the Mondays. I am not. I feel like I'm having a, a fun Monday here. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Let's get into who is having a case of the Mondays right now. Surprises are having a case of the Mondays. Because you can't be surprised when you see the... Uh, preseason coaches poll that came out guess who's number one 
Surprise, West Virginia. Not. No. Alabama. <laughs> of course, it's always Alabama in at number one. They're followed by Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, and Notre Dame. It's funny. I heard, uh, I, I want to say, I can't remember if it was at SEC Media Day or what, but Nick Saban made a comment about last year being a rebuilding year. For Alabama, they made the title game, and right. if not for like Jamison Williams and John Mechie, who were both you know NFL wide receivers getting hurt, one of them in the I forget if it was the SEC championship or the semifinal, the other in the title game, I believe, or, or I don't know, maybe one was semifinal, one was SEC. I don't even remember. You know, the, with this being a show based around, I mean, they KU might have won the title. Sport, with this being a show uh, centered around KU sports, we don't want to hear it yeah, <laughs> when right. it comes to rebuilding. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine if Bill Self, you know, came out today and was like, "Yeah, we were, we we're actually rebuilding last year." It just like, it doesn't come across. But um, it is kind of funny. But I actually like, I don't even think it was him, like you know, lying or, or overblowing something. To a certain extent, it was. Like you think about how many young players they have. For instance, they had two players in the top five of the Heisman voting with Bryce Young and Will Anderson. Neither of them even had the option to go pro. So like, it was a younger team. So I get. To a certain extent, what he's saying, it's just when you're Alabama, you never rebuild. You just reload, at least in the days that Nick Saban is there. So uh, that is kind of funny. But, yeah, no surprise with them being there. Uh, This is actually kind of a surprise. Someone gave Texas a first-place vote. Good Lord. (laughs) This is the coach's poll, so it could have just been Steve Sarkeesian. Oh, my goodness. That would be kind of funny, right? (laughs) I've always wondered what would That's what never made sense to me. The coach's poll was a part of the BCS. Like, why was it was like the Harris poll or something, which I don't know why that one was chosen as well. It was the coaches poll and it was the computers poll. If they would have just done like the computer poll, the AP poll, I don't know. They could have had a committee poll or something like that. Whatever. That would have been even better. And to be clear, I actually kind of like the BCS. Nonetheless, um, the fact that you had the coaches poll where a coach could just vote himself number one and help his BCS ranking kind of always a weird process to me. So yeah, then why I, shouldn't every team have number one, uh, one number one vote I, at the very least? That's what I'm saying. Like, if I was a coach, I'd just vote myself number one every week. Like, I don't care. So yeah. I, I don't know if that's what happened. It would also be funny if, like, Brent Venables at Oklahoma voted him number one just because he knew it would create this much drama. And it would... I don't know. It, it created a bunch of like negative publicity right. uh, from a standpoint, just to you know throw a grenade there and just kind of run away. Um, by the way, they're uh, cumulative wise, they're 18th in the coaches' poll. Yeah. So exactly. <laughs> so nobody even else was probably close. Like, I feel Bama, like Bama, Georgia, Bama, Texas. Yeah. What? Exactly. Like I feel like I would even. It's not just that there was only first place vote. I would go as far to say I feel like nobody else probably even voted him top five right. or top ten. Even, <laughs> Everybody, to be it, honest, it's like the it's like the weird guy just in the corners, like Texas <laughs> yeah. number one. Were you again? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh my. Oh God. gosh. So, um, that's the coaches poll. If you had to pick someone, because to be honest, if you gave me Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama versus the field to win the title this year. I'm taking those three. Yeah. I'm taking Alabama to win it all regardless. Though I would be, like I saw uh, betting odds got released. It had Alabama at plus 150 to win the title. It had Ohio State at, I think, 3-1 to one, and Georgia at plus 350. I would be tempted if, you, if you're telling me, if you put a bet on Ohio State and Georgia, it basically cuts the odds in half. So it'd basically be like you're getting Ohio State and Georgia at plus 150, or you can have Alabama at plus 150. That's tough, but I probably would go Alabama there. 
Um, right now, it seems like the the spot for the fourth playoff spot is kind of open. Obviously, Clemson, I think by most places, is seen as the favorite to get that fourth spot, but they had kind of a bad year. Like, DJ Uyunglele really struggled. He had more interceptions than touchdowns. It's a long name, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I think that fourth playoff spot is open. Who wins the title, I think, is pretty open and shut. Yeah. If you had to pick someone, though, who is not ranked in the coaches' poll preseason top five to just at least make the playoff, forget winning the title, mm. who would you go with? I'm going with Texas. No, I'm kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, kidding. So I'm kidding. You were... Uh, <laughs> I was the first Yeah, player. you were the voter. You somehow no, got a vote. But I am going with a team in Texas. Uh, I'm going to go Baylor. I think they're good enough, and I know they're hungry after last year because, you know, towards the midseason, they were, they were sought as quite a possibility to be in the college football playoff until they lost to TCU. I think they can do it. I think they're going to do it, in my opinion. Baylor has got a really good defense. You lose Terrell Bernard and Jalen Peter, but, I mean, they should have a really good defense. What scares me with Baylor, they got a tough schedule. You got the Big 12. You got BYU on there as well. Um, And I I do think the Big 12 is wide open, though. So if you, you know, you master the Big 12, like, you're going to have a chance there. And like I said, I'm actually going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say this is the first year that we ever get a two-loss team in the college football playoff. I think that could happen with that fourth spot because it's wide open. So if Baylor goes 10-2, and two, wins the Big 12 title, gets to 11-2, and two, which I think is what they did last year, mm-hmm. that could get you in. I'm going to go, I mean, the obvious answer would just be go, oh, I'll just go sixth place team Michigan. But I, I think Ohio State's going to beat them, get revenge uh, for that this year. A&M, I think, has a lot of talent, but they're too young. I'm not buying the Utah stuff, and they have Florida right off the bat. I could see them losing that, even though I'm not like super high on Florida this year. I think they could just lose to USC and some of the. I don't know. I don't love the Pac-12 this year. The school that I'm going to go with, I'm going to go to Miami. Miami is Ohio there or the 17th. U? No, Miami, the U. Miami of Ohio, I would have picked is them. Back. But Lonnie Phelps went to Kansas, so you know that was the difference in me not picking them. But I mean, uh, I mean the thing is, there has there only been one. There is at least one. Has there only been one two-loss national champion? National champion. I believe so. LSU, LSU Miles, right? Yeah, 2007, 2008, yeah. that crazy college football year. Auburn almost did it in the last year of the BCS in right. either 13 or 14, but they just lost. But yeah, we haven't even had a two loss in the playoff, right. which is which is odd because like you said, at least we did have some uh, a team who did win a title with it. Miami is interesting to me at 17 because they got a really good quarterback. Tyler Van Dyke broke out at the end of the last season. He's a guy who's kind of being seen as, you know, if he has a big season, he could be a first-round draft pick in, in the NFL and everything like that. They have a bunch of talent. Mario Cristobal comes over from Oregon. He's been great at recruiting. He was a national championship winning offensive lineman there. He knows the area really well. He's going to do good with talent. It, I, I think it's going to take maybe some time to build everything up, but I don't think Manny Diaz, when he was there, it was like a lack of bringing in talent or anything. So I do think they have... Uh, some good players that are on the roster. And when I look at the ACC, there actually are some good teams in the ACC this year, right? Whether it's Clemson, Pittsburgh's a top 20 team. Wake Forest is top 20 in the preseason. NC State is top 15 there. There's some tough teams you're going to have to get over, but I think Miami is on the right side of the division there. NC State and Clemson are in the same division. So is Wake Forest there. So they might beat up on each other a little bit. Miami has Pittsburgh in the division, and Pittsburgh's top 20. I like Pittsburgh. I think they could be an eight or nine win team. They got a really good defense. But also, they lost Kenny Pickett, Heisman contender at quarterback. They lost uh, the top receiver maybe in the country in Jordan Addison. And we've seen in years past, Pittsburgh has been like 
an elite defense or a really good defense, but the offense hasn't been there, and they win six or seven games. So I, I think Pittsburgh st- takes a step back. I think it opens up for Miami. Miami plays Clemson this year, but I think they get them at home. If they go, again, if there's a two-loss team in there, they go 10-2 and two and you beat Clemson once then and once in the ACC title at 11-2, and two, that might get it done. I think there is some sleeper value in Miami there. Okay, uh, case of the Mondays for love. Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson have broken up. Love is dead. Love is dead. If they're not safe, then who is, right? (laughs) I don't have much more to add there. Uh, TCU football is feeling a case of the Mondays today. SMU, their in-town rival, both of them in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, SMU is setting up an NIL collective that will pay all football and basketball players $36,000 per year. I feel like this is only a matter of time before, like, every big-time university does this. You know, maybe some of your smaller D1s won't be able to. But, like, it's probably only a matter of time. We saw Texas Tech do this. I feel like at some point Kansas is going to have this done. Um, SMU, though, this is interesting for a couple reasons. One, like, obviously they were the Pony Express and they got in trouble for, like, paying players. So, theoretically, now that this stuff is possible, maybe SMU is, like, on the precipice of becoming like a college football power again. I mean, in the, what was it, the 80s when they were like, mm-hmm. you know, consistently like a top 10, top 25 team in the country. Maybe that's what they are. Maybe to that standpoint, the Big 12 should be watching this going, hey, now that you can pay players, we saw when you were able to pay players in the past, you know, you weren't supposed to, but you did, how good you were. Now that we know you can pay players basically legally, let's invite you to the Big 12 because you could be really good. I don't know if that'll ever come to it. And I'm sure TCU is going, no, we would never vote for them to come into the league. Why would we want to share Dallas even more with them? But if you're, you know, at TCU, you're already splitting the city with SMU. If you don't come up with some sort of NIL opportunity that either gets close to matching or beats what SMU is doing there, it's going to become even more difficult for them to recruit in the local area. And and to be clear, like the Dallas Fort Worth area is such a huge pipeline that there are a bunch of players to go around, but it's not just TCU and SMU recruiting it. It's Texas coming in, Oklahoma coming in, it's Alabama coming Right? It's such a big pipeline that big schools all across the area are. So they need to lock down that area compared to SMU, and that's going to be tough for them if they don't come up with something to kind of counter that. Now, they're going to come up with we're going to pay you 36001 <laughs> I would love that. It'd be awesome. It'd be petty. It'd be awesome. That's what college sports is kind of for. I will say, though, I'm, I'm rooting for them not to come up with something because if they don't and SMU is able to undercut them in recruiting by doing this and it hurts TCU and they're not able to recruit as well, I talk about all the time, like, for Kansas to be a more consistent bowl team or to be out of the cellar in the Big 12, it's not just the KU has to improve by themselves. It's also that you'd have to pass someone. And one way to pass them is just by doing things better than them. That can happen. But an easier way of passing someone is you do things a little better, and they start to plummet. They do things right. worse than you. And if KU is able to surpass a program in the Big 12, something like this, maybe that comes into play. That'd be great for KU. Okay, case of the Mondays for um, Harrison Butker. Harrison Butker, the Chiefs kicker, uh, may have some competition on the roster. Justin Reed, the safety that they signed from the Houston Texans. Um, There's a video of Justin Reed kicking a 65-yard field goal in training camp. And, you know, it doesn't look like natural form of, like, a kicker, like, 
I don't know. It looks like more like if me or you went out there and kicked the football just in terms of the, the run-up. But he nails it through the uprights. I mean, I mean, we've seen position players play as kickers before in a rare form, like Ndamukin Sue and even one with Doug Flutie. Like Shadow Chosinko <laughs> yeah. did it. Um, I mean, back in the day, they all did it, right? It was like, right. like John Hadle was the punter for KU. Or you go back even further, and it was... Uh, Oh, what was the former great TCU quarterback that has the uh, quarterback award named after him? Uh, Davey O'Brien. Like, Davey O'Brien's like kicking field goals and, and punts. So, like, it was always a thing in the past, but now it's been more specialized and everything. But, so I don't mean from the standpoint of the impact and value that Shohei Otani has, because that'd be more similar to a player who plays offense and defense. But in terms of what Shohei Otani does for the Angels in baseball, it, it's not just the value that he's good at both. It's that having one player that can do both, you only have a limited amount of roster spots. There's right. only 26 roster spots in the MLB. So having a guy who can do both allows you to bring on an extra specialist player, and that can be so valuable in the baseball world. College football, it's not as much of a big thing because you have you know 85 scholarships, and with walk-ons, you have over 100 kids on the roster. That you're more likely to get hurt. Yeah, yeah. So. But in the NFL, <laughs> you only have 53 roster spots. So having, if you have a guy who is good at kicking and he's, you know, a starter for you on defense or something, to be able to be like, hey, I, I'm only carrying like eight offensive linemen. It'd be great if I could carry a ninth or, you know, it'd be great if I could carry a, a seventh defensive lineman or whatever it is, like just keeping that extra position for depth in a spot that you could have a lot of injuries. I mean, that would be very valuable. So... I wonder if it's only a matter of time before you do. We do circle back to this where you have players like Justin Reed where they're like, you know what? Maybe we'll only make 80% of our field goals instead of 90% because you're not working as much here. But is it worth it to have that extra roster spot? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I don't know. If you're Harrison Bucker, you got competition now. Okay, case of the Mondays for my appetite. Um, There are... Ketchup and mayonnaise flavored ice cream that are being offered oh, to London consumers. Why? <laughs> if you had to have one, which would you go with? Ketchup. It'd have to be ketchup. I mean, mayo. Because, like, the thing is, the only thing I like with mayo is sandwich, of course. And, mm -hmm. of course, I do with ketchup, too. But I also use ketchup with fries. And I've actually used ketchup with, uh, with eggs before. It's actually kind of good. Um, I don't do it often, but it's actually kind of good. But... Um, it's just because you can doesn't mean you should. Is the thing. <laughs> yeah right? Um, see, okay. So my my dad loves mayo chup, which I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Really? Which is like the combination Heinz made, like a it's half mayo, half ketchup, right? I wonder if I should get him this ice cream as like a birthday <laughs> present or something, and and have mayo chup ice cream for him if he loves it that much. Um, I would actually see this is weird because I. I prefer ketchup over mayo. Honestly, I'm not a huge mayo guy, but there are certain times that I can get into it. Like like you said, on a sandwich, I can get on board with mayo. Um, but for the most part, mayo is not really my thing, and I think it is abhorrent, uh, the like European way of using yeah. mayo where they dip like French fries in it. No thank you to that. Um, but honestly, for the ice cream flavors here, hear me out. I think I would go mayo because ketchup, I don't know. I just can't envision like a... That tart, like, like sourish, tomatoey flavor of ice cream, at least with mayo, because mayo is kind of more of a dull flavor. It's more so like the texture, I think, that gets people with mayo. Like, I could just see the mayo ice cream just tasting kind of like a, 
a butterscotchy like ice cream. I don't know. I, I think that one actually might. I'm not going out of my way to try it. Yeah, but I, I think it'd be the better <laughs> of the two. Okay, okay, we're gonna have to get some at some point. <laughs> I don't know if we can. I don't know if it's only in London, but I would be totally down for that as like a you know see punishment. Can, see if we can get international shipping and somehow mm. have it not melt. Buy mayo ice cream. <laughs> see what pops up. Uh, it says there's no way that has it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It says in London, but maybe it'll come over to the U.S. Okay, uh, last up. Case of the Mondays, anyone facing Jacob deGrom. He is back in the MLB. Ironically enough, the Royals kind of tagged him up in uh, AAA the other day before he came up. But he's back, and he is dominating once again. He faced the Atlanta Braves over the weekend. They whiffed on 21 of 31 swings taken. So this isn't just that, like, you know, they they didn't get a hit on 21 of 31 swings or whatever. They couldn't even hit 21 of the 31 and he threw 16 sliders. They didn't even touch one of them. Wow. They or, uh, He threw 16 sliders to get the guy. That got swung at, I should say. They didn't hit a single one of them. Didn't even foul one off. Unbelievable. I, I wish he could stay healthy because to see a full season, I, I mean, it just doesn't seem like that's in the cards anymore. But when he is pitching, he is without a doubt the best pitcher in baseball, and he is just an absolute freak show in the most positive way. With Lane Gillespie, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. We've got some Lance Leipold audio to share for you. We've also got RCST trivia coming at you later this hour. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Did you know that on our website, klwn.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. RCST Trivia is brought to you by 23rd Street Brewery, Jayhawk Trophy, and Johnny's Tavern. And we've got a uh, matchup today in the Monday Division. Our other matchup from the Monday Division had to be pushed to uh, Friday. So just the one today. And it's two teams trying to get off the schneid, get their first win of the season. Andrew Wymore at 0-2, 15 points through the first two. Blake at 0-1 and three points in the first matchup. Uh, so, Blake, you're you're headed into matchup number two here. Have you done anything extra to get ready for the second matchup? You know, I've just been getting prepped for this year uh, with KU football, just figuring out how the team's looking in uh, in camp so far, and just gonna relax and enjoy it. And hopefully, I can get more than uh, than three points because that was uh, an embarrassing start for someone that prides himself as being a, a lifelong KU football addict. All right, so who's the uh, player on this year's KU football team you're most excited for? Uh, I'm really excited to see Kai Thomas uh, from a running back standpoint. I think Devin's great, but I think if you look at Kai's numbers at Minnesota, they're really similar to Devin. And so I think if you can double up basically Devin's productivity, which probably would have done a little bit better at Minnesota than KU and Yad and Kai, I think that's a really, really, really dynamic one-two punch. Yep, should be. Well, Andrew, uh, you head into week three here, and, and you're trying to get your first victory. Do you, do you feel like there's extra pressure mounting to get that first victory, or do you feel the opposite? Do you feel like the pressure's all off now, that you can just kind of be the dark horse? I'll say the latter. 
Derek, um, we've been distracted uh, the last <laughs> couple weeks and hoping that we've got a better game plan today. All right. Well, uh, I'll ask you the, the same question I asked Blake. Is there, is there a KU football player you're most excited for to uh, see this next season? Probably uh, knowing our quarterback here uh, three weeks out or whatever. So I'll say Jalen. Yeah, that'll uh, certainly be exciting. And uh, that would be kind of funny if, if they jumped the gun there and then it ended up being like, no, we're going to actually start chasing me. But no, uh, I think that's kind of the expectation here. Okay, uh, so in this matchup, I'm just basing this entire thing based on who home and, and who's on the road for this week, based on who wears their, uh, I guess, home home uniforms. You're wearing red. Blake is wearing the, the lighter color, kind of like a, a light blue-white. So we'll call that kind of like his home white. So, Blake, I'll give you the option. Do you want to choose heads or tails? Tails never fails, Derek. Everyone knows that. And it's failed a lot on here, and it has failed once again. Heads it is, Andrew. <laughs> it finally works out for me. I know. You have the option. Do you want to go first or do you want to go second? I'll go second. All right, so Blake, that means you're up first. We start in the first quarter of things. These are worth three points in the easy round. Blake, name this Jayhawk running back who led the team with over 1,100 rushing yards in his 1993 freshman season, and his first name is a month of the year. Uh, is it June Hensley? June Henley, give it to you there. And uh, 1993. That's two years before me, Derek, but I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. This one for you, Andrew. Name this Jayhawk running back who led the team with over 1,100 rushing yards in his 2007 senior season and appears on RCST as a guest on Fridays. One of my all-time favorites, Brandon McAnderson. Yeah, BMAC. Well, if he's one of your all-time favorites, maybe we can uh, get him to, I don't know ask you a question on air or something would be kind of cool all right <laughs> back to you blake three to three the score both of you guys perfect through the easy round into the medium round second quarter these are worth six blake what ku quarterback owns the school record for most attempts in one game with 62 of them doing so on september 2nd 2017 against southeast missouri um that Peyton? No, um, it's not Carter. Cozart? No, Brian Willis. I'm I'm messing it all of them. What's your final answer? <laughs> I'll go with Monsell Cozart, but I know it's wrong. Correct answer was the first guy you mentioned, Peyton Bender. Second guess yourself out of that one. I don't know why he threw it 62 times against Southeast Missouri. What is up with that? Okay, uh, Andrew. For you to take the lead into the halftime break. In a 2017 game against West Virginia, what KU running back went for 291 rushing yards, breaking the school record for yards per attempt on at least 30 carries? Say the year again. It was uh, 2017 against West Virginia. I was at that game. We were we made a point to run it because uh, it was so windy. Um, was that James Sims? A little bit after James Sims, yeah. Khalil Herbert is the correct answer there. Uh, had 291 rushing right. yards. He uh, the next year ended up behind Puka Williams, but heck of a running back now in the NFL with the Chicago Bears. Okay, 
if I could if I could answer all of Andrew's questions, I think he could answer all of mine. So if we just want to like swap here, I think we both would score perfect scores. I mean, you don't know what's going to come from here. I'll give you the option, Andrew. Do you want to switch questions? No. Okay. That would be a first ever in uh, RCST trivia, but we'll stick with it. Okay, under the third quarter, it is still three to three. These are worth seven in the hard round. Back to you, Blake. This Jayhawk quarterback finished with over 2,300 passing yards and 14 touchdowns in 1973 before he was drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs in the third round of the NFL draft. What's his name? Yeah, I think last week I brought him up, but I'll, I'll go again. David James. That's right. See, it worked out that you had the questions in the right order this time. <laughs> Back for you. And I did not. I, these are not planned. I'm not picking them out. This is just how luck happened to go. Okay. Big one for you, Andrew, to try to tie it heading into the fourth quarter. This Jayhawk running back rushed for over 1,100 yards in his 1974 sophomore season. Later on, he was a fourth-round draft pick by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1977 NFL draft. What's his name? I mean, I, I don't think he played for him uh, for very long if he played, but um, what, could it have been Riggins? Riggins, I want to say, was late 60s, uh, maybe into the early 70s. The correct answer is Laverne Smith. Does that name ring a bell? The L train. Yep. All right, so it is 10 to 3. Blake, you have the lead. If you answer this first question correctly, you secure the victory. If not, Andrew will have the option to, or, well, not the option, he'll have the chance to uh, answer a question correctly and, and steal the win on a uh, eight-pointer here. So into the really hard round, Blake, for you first. KU football's head coach from 1933 to 1938 with a record of 19 wins, 28 losses, and eight ties was who? Paul Gallon. That's been the common guess for coaches anything before like 1940, which I don't blame you for because he, he was coaching. Um, the correct answer is Adrian Lindsay. Adrian Lindsay. Okay, this is for you, Andrew, to try to steal the win worth eight points. It would put you ahead 11 to 10. Otherwise, Blake gets his first dub. Andrew, following Adrian Lindsay and going 9 and 27 from 1939 to 1942 was what head coach? Fog Allen. <laughs> it is Gwyn Henry. I don't know if either of those names ring a bell for either of you guys. But, Blake, you come away with the win here, 10-3 to 3 the final. Were you nervous headed into that last question for Andrew? Yeah, I was. I knew Fog Allen. I, I want to say he probably was more in the 20s mm -hmm. um, when he was the AD. But for some reason, I thought you were going to do me dirty there, Derek, and have it be Fog Allen. He was going to steal that one away from me. So, I don't know if you're looking at my face, but I was convinced Fog Allen was going to be the right answer. <laughs> Well, Andrew, uh, you come up a little bit short there. Where did it go wrong? Well, I should have known Clay Herbert um, on that uh, second question there. Um, I, I too, thought that Fogg was, uh, you know, the, the decade before that or whatever. But then I, would, I knew I would just be kicking myself if it turned out to be uh, you know, just the way the sequence of the questions went and everything. Um, 
So credit to Blake. Congrats uh, on getting your first win. We just kind of keep sawing wood. Yeah, what are uh, what are kind of your thoughts headed? Because you have one more matchup after this. You're sitting at zero and three, so going to be tough to to you know make the college football playoff from here. But that's the beauty of you know like college football. You can be sitting there if KU is going into the last game against K State at three and eight. They can't make a bowl game, but hey, they can spoil K State season or you know keep them from maybe going to a bowl game or going to a Big Twelve championship or whatever. And obviously, there's a lot of momentum that can be had from that. So, what are kind of your thoughts headed into uh, your last matchup? You know, any given Monday, anything can happen. So we're going to prepare uh, like it's um, every other game, although I don't know, maybe I should prepare a little bit differently <laughs> uh, since I'm 0-3 here. Um, but, no, we're, we're going to keep sawing wood and go out and give it our best next week. I love it. Well, Blake, you get your first victory of the season. So all positive momentum here. Thoughts on your Week 2 performance and moving ahead for the final two matchups. Um, I would have loved all of Andrew's questions, but his last two. Um, I know, Derek, we go way back from our, our time at KU, but, I mean, thank you on the hint on the first one. Otherwise, I would have definitely not got that question right. would have nailed Brandon McAnderson within mere seconds. Um, thinking back on the Peyton Bender one, I mean – I can literally go backwards. I should have, should have done this. Just went backwards on starting quarterbacks at KU or gone forward from Charlie Weiss, and I would have gotten it. Um, but also, like, I graduated in the spring of 17, and for some reason, Peyton Bender feels like he was a quarterback at KU like 30 years ago and not five. Um, but we're good. Hey, and there's, a, there's only one path to three and one. we got to rack up more points. Uh, so we're going to make it happen, and – we're going to make the committee sweat and make people proud on that preseason ranking. Love it. Love it. Yeah, that's one thing we didn't even talk about. Blake went from preseason number two to number four and then falling out of the top ten, but who knows, maybe back in it uh, after this week. Guys, I appreciate it as always, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Derek. Good luck, Blake. Blake victorious moves to 1-1 one and one on the season with 13 points scored. Andrew drops to 0-3 with 18 points scored and currently – if we take a look at the Monday division, like I said, uh, we have a matchup between Kyle and Jim that is going to go on Friday's edition of the show. At least that's the plan here. Um, currently, Aaron Mayer is on bye for this week in, in the Monday group. He's ranked number two in our latest top 10. He's also leading the Monday division at 2-0 and with 40 points scored. Jim is in second. He's 1-0 and with 13 points scored. He's taking on Kyle, who's in third at 1-1 and with 25 points scored. Kyle's also ranked 10th in the top 10. And so uh, Andrew will drop into, uh, I guess he was at 0-2, but now 0-3 with Blake moving up to 1-1. So Blake will either be in third place if Jim beats Kyle, or he could be in fourth place if Kyle beats Jim and Jim doesn't score a certain amount of points. So uh, it'll kind of all wait and see uh, for that. Coming up tomorrow, we continue on to our Tuesday division who has three of the top six in the RCST Top 10. That should be very exciting. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Once again, RCST Trivia is brought to you by 23rd Street Brewery, Jayhawk Trophy, and Johnny's Tavern. I'm Derek Johnson along with Lane Gillespie. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.